Episode 4, The Sewer. Beneath the streets of the city lost in a thrall of the black sun, a god is being born. It wasn't anything that anyone planned. Nobody sat down to write his stories. Nobody sought to bring him into the world. But bit by bit, the god continued to emerge. It started like this. When the sky first split and the black sun first appeared, things got a bit chaotic. It would be some time before the man McGray fortified the center of the city and set up his alarm system. Mostly people were on their own to live and die, however the cards fell. Pat Guilfoyle was on his own and he was scared. So he went to ground, prying open a manhole cover and surrendering himself to the sewers. And it wasn't all bad. Not once you got used to the smell anyway. The sewer tunnels went on for miles, crisscrossing throughout the city, a labyrinth devouring itself. A man could walk for weeks and never stray upon the same spot twice. Pat Guilfoyle came to love the sewers and to think of them as his domain, his kingdom. But if he was going to make a real go of it, he would need supplies. He joined and raised the department stores, retrieving everything he needed to light up his dark realm. For a time, he was alone, and he was content. But when creatures began to cross into the city from out of the midnight desert, Pat Guilfoyle soon had company. Many began prying up those manhole covers, and the calls of interlopers echoed throughout his sewers. Pat Guilfoyle hunted them down, every last one, and like a shepherd who reluctantly takes up his crook, he brought them into his light. Whether he liked it or not, Pat Guilfoyle was now in charge of a tribe. But we haven't spoken of their god yet, have we? That had nothing to do with Pat Guilfoyle. On the first night, when the newly constituted sewer tribe, at full strength for the first time, bedded down in one of the more cavernous chambers, two brothers fidgeted, unable to sleep. One was ten, one was six. In the night, in the silence, in the dark, they began to hear a noise. The noise had no body, no shape, no source, only a menace come drifting out towards them from the permanent night of the sewer. The boys' minds conjured an endless array of phantoms, just as they would have back home. But they were not lying in the warm and soft reality of their beds at home. They were not comforted by the sane glow of a nightlight, a constant reminder that the world, for all its mysteries, was a solid place built on solid things, a place where lines went straight and angles added up cleanly. This was a new world, a world where monsters ran free. The older one sensed the fear in his brother, feeling it in his own heart, ashamed of it. He came up with a choice piece of meanness. He leaned close to his brother's ear and whispered, It's probably just all King Croc. The god began to take shape. Now he had a name. Over the next few weeks, the older brother kept on after the younger brother, 
feeding him all sorts of details about this thing he called Old King Croc. How he looked like a crocodile but walked upright like a man. How he had exactly 72 teeth in his long maw, each one sharper than the last. How he walked the sewers dressed in the tattered remains of his victim's clothing. How his eyes glittered even in the dark. Sharp yellow marble shot through with a black slit streak. In the dead of night, if you wandered off alone, you might see those eyes bob towards you closer and closer, coming out the deep, dank, dark. In those first days of the tribe, the adults were too busy cornering off their territory and establishing the nature of their home. They did not always have the wherewithal to mind precisely where the children went, precisely what they were up to. So there came a day when a group of children went beyond the tentative boundaries and the older brother went a curve of pipe farther than anyone else was willing to go. When the next bravest child followed him, she found nothing but empty dark. They waited until they were positive it could not be a prank, and then they waited a little while longer. And then, as one, the children raced back to tell their parents what had happened. Search parties went out. Search parties came back. What was left of him would find. They found three days later. The whole tribe might have ended right there. But the fear kept them together. Fear of the outside world matched fear of the underground place. And at least here they had saw walls, defensive measures, and other people. The boy's death was tagged as a tragic accident and left at that. Discussion was discouraged among the adults. But the children talked, or more accurately, they listened. They listened as a younger brother told them all about the thing that he knew had killed his brother. They drank in the gospel of old King Croc. At first, the adults didn't know what to make of it. They heard the stories and stolen clutches of conversation, voices carrying back enough pipes beyond the speaker's audience. The younger brother held mass at the same stretch of pipe where his brother had vanished, his small body only barely taller than his kneeling congregation. His eyes were wild, his words were brimstone, and the children of the sewer tribe listened, and they believed. And soon, it was just about every boy and girl who had some close personal encounter with a thing called Old King Croc. The adults did not like it. Not first. They tried to sway their charges from this new faith, but questioned the survival meant that the imaginary world of children needed to go on a back burner. And so, in this way, Old King Croc got a firmer grip on the world. There was one moment when they could have stopped it, when the nascent god could have been snuffed out in his crib. This was a group meeting, held on a Thursday night. The refreshments were poor, but spirits were up. Electricity was steady, safety was secure, and the adults began, almost against their own will, to believe that perhaps they had room enough now to hope. The meeting was just about to disband when Elle McIntosh raised her hand. She was concerned, she said, about the games the children had taken to play in. 
She didn't like this croc character they had dreamed up and worried that some were taking it too far. Some, she said, had even begun leaving a raw meat stolen from the tribe's stores at the furthest edges of their domain and offering a sacrifice. Some in the group shared her concerns, but most were dismissive. With all the terrible things that the children saw and knew, what harm could there be in an imaginary friend? Best just let it go. Elle McIntosh did not let things go. She never picked up the knack. She kept after her children and then after the others. She was a one-woman crusader, carrying nation at war to prohibit this new idol. There were drawings. She ripped them apart. There were written accounts. She dumped them in foul water until the words bled. And there were the sermons. She sought them out and broke them up, shooting the congregation back to the main area, a wooden spoon swinging in her hand. The younger brother never spoke a word to or against her. He watched her with those eyes that burned in cold fire, like the light of a dying star. There are many theories as to what exactly happened to L. Macintosh, but we'll stick to what is known. What is known is that her husband awoke one Tuesday morning to find her half of the sleeping bag empty. He assumed she had stepped out of the tent and was at the main site, maybe making breakfast or chatting with the others. He didn't find her there. He thought perhaps that she had gone to the laundry lines, hoping to beat the crush of people that tended to accumulate as the day went on. He didn't find her there. He thought maybe she'd gone to visit Tina Cruz, her old friend, and had gotten to gossiping only to lose track of time. He didn't find her there. Truth be told, he didn't find her at all. Marcus Frost found what was left to be found of Elle McIntosh. Her face had been removed by powerful jaws. Her once been eyes that wept with joy or sorrow where once had been a mouth that laughed and gasped and smiled and yelled, a mouth that had tasted six men and two women. Those were college years, and she had never told even her husband about that. Where there had been cheeks littered with freckles, cheeks that flushed red when she thought of those college years. Where these had been, there was only a red and black ma, empty and silent. An offering. A sacrifice. The adults did not speak out against old King Croc again, not after that. Some even began attending the sermons, at first as self-described chaperones. This pretext was rapidly abandoned. The fervor around old King Croc faded. He became part of the fabric of life, accepted without question. His existence was taken as a given, and so there was no need to discuss him just as no one felt the need to discuss the yellow pall that fell over their eyes, or the webbing that crept up between their fingers, or the green pallor that seeped into their skin. If you had described these adaptations to them before they went into the sewer, most likely they would have been horrified. But they were a different people now. They were the sewer tribe. They were his people. Croc's people and they never once failed to leave him an offering.
but none of this is answering the question you've been asking since we started with this telling. There's only one thing you really care about. You want to know if he's real or not. Listen. Rebecca Fleming had been living with the sewer tribe for three weeks, and she had yet to say a word. Since the death of her father, a streak of perfect silver ran down her hair, the silver seemed to glow in the dank light of the sewer. She went where she was told to go. When food was placed in her hand, she ate. When exhaustion took her, she lay wherever she dropped until it was time to rise. She would not raise her eyes to meet any of theirs. She stuck close to Tommy Barnes. The boy had stumbled across her and brought her down below. Tommy mostly didn't mind. She was an intriguing creature, with skin as pale as new snow and eyes that shone clean and clear. She had trouble moving in the dark, which led to the assumption that she was slow and clumsy. She followed him anywhere and everywhere. So when Tommy Barnes was chosen to take the daily offering to the edge of their territory, Rebecca Fleming followed him. Tommy laid the raw meat down in the appointed place and turned to go. Rebecca did not move. He called to her, waited for her to follow him, a master losing patience with a dog that refuses to heal. Rebecca did not move. So he left her to the dark. Tommy Barnes did not live much longer beyond that day, but for as long as he did live, he would regret that decision. When teeth finally closed around his throat and ripped, the final image his mind would conjure was of her, the thin, pale girl, sitting at tunnel's end, growing smaller and smaller as he moved away, until she was lost forever to the night. And then, it was his turn to be lost. Rebecca had not had any kind of plan when she refused to leave. There had just been something right about this spot. It was as if she'd been dreaming of this place her entire life as if everything she'd ever said or done had been a prelude to this moment and whatever came next. Rebecca sat and waited, letting the cold soak down beneath her skin. That was fine. She barely even felt it. It was difficult for her to feel much of anything these days. While she knew she was alive, biologically speaking in any case, it was difficult to reconcile that with the emptiness that permeated her being. Gnashing teeth had been in her forehead the day her father died, but while the sewer tribe had quickly staunched the bleeding and patched up the cut, she felt as if the wound continued to leak. Only it wasn't blood that ebbed out of her, but something invisible, and altogether more precious. She could remember what it was to want things, but somehow the capacity for this had been turned off inside her. When she had been younger, the family would take trips across the country to visit her dad's family. Her grandparents' house was Rebecca's favorite place in the entire world, and not just because of the clean air or quiet nights or the flower beds that seemed to her young eyes to stretch for miles and miles with the most vibrant colors imaginable. Those were fine things, 
good things, but they were not what made that house her most favorite place in the world. No, that honor went to the bedroom, her bedroom, and the little square patch on the far wall. Grandma had explained that it was a crawl space that had been wallpapered over years before, but to Rebecca, it was a fairy door, her fairy door. When the sun had set and the silver moon glowed amongst the stars, the door would swing open and Rebecca would crawl through, emerging into a wooden glen. Tinkling laughter would lead her deeper into the forest until she came upon a clearing where enchanted lords and ladies waltzed in the air, borne aloft on their gossamer wings. A fawn would be there, her youth spent entrenched in Narnia books giving him Mr. Thomas's face and scarf. He would take her hands in his, and together they would dance beneath the fairy lights. When her legs gave out, he would scoop her up in his arms and keep dancing. She felt warm, felt safe, and it was with these dreams still in her mind that Rebecca would wake each morning. She knew it was all a dream, of course, but, but in the soft gold glow of the early sun, it was easy to believe that magic was indeed real. The black sun gave no wings to such illusion. It did not give. It took. It did not inspire. Only quelled. And now she had sunk even lower. Even that bleak sky was closed to her gaze. She supposed she must have been a pretty silly kid to have had such dreams. Now she did want something. She wanted to go back to being that kid, to being the kind of person who could afford silly dreams. Rebecca eyed the meat that had been left. She had the wild thought of tossing the meat from the plate and into the water, or perhaps she could have followed it in some other way. She felt the pang of pure hatred for these people and their wretched God. It felt good to hate things. Instead, she sank back it was probably time to go. But then she heard it. From just around the corner, something slithered. Rebecca was on her feet at once, facing where the noise had come from. Only only now it sounded again, but from the other direction. She turned, and there it was again, once more behind her. She could no longer tell which had been the front and which had been the back. Before and behind her were identical black moths. The slithering sound came again. She thought she heard a voice. She thought it might be her father. He whispered from the dark telling her how much he loved her, how much he missed her. Her mother was there too, he said, and she missed her as well. We are waiting in the Red City, he said. Just walk towards my voice, and you can join us. Rebecca stayed herself against the side of the pipe and began moving away from the direction she thought the voice was coming from. The voice called her name. She ignored it. The voice begged her. She ignored it. The voice told her that if she didn't stop right this instant, 
is going to chase her, catch her, gut her, and split her in half from the skull down and drink whatever came out. Rebecca ran. The thing ran also. Its feet made wet slapping sounds against the concrete pipe, its labored breathing giving way to a whining screech. Rebecca's lungs burned, but she kept running. When her legs began to ache, when her pace began to falter, she felt cold fingers glance across the nape of her neck, and she found new speed. There's an opening not far ahead. She could make it. Strong hands grasped the back of her shirt. Her collar leapt into her throat and forced all the air from her lungs. She toppled back, and the thing was upon her. It was thin, hideously thin, its molted skin the color of maggot hide. It was naked, with hands and feet tipped with black claws. It didn't have teeth of its own, instead wearing razor blades embedded in its gums. Rebecca did not even have the air to scream as the creature reared back with a killing blow. She breathed out the word, please. The figure that rushed them was broad and fast, tearing through the sewer at a rapid pace. It struck the pale thing and carried it off without breaking stride off and out of sight. The thing screeched once and then was silent. Rebecca Fleming sat up and stared into the space where the bodies had gone. She waited. Sharp yellow marbles with a black slit streak bobbed towards her out of the dark. The thing that stepped forward looked like a crocodile, but walked like a man. He had exactly 72 teeth in his long maw. His clothes were tattered rags. Rebecca approached him, feeling no fear. She sank into his arms and he bore her up. His scaly hide was cold to the touch, but Rebecca had never felt warmer. The young god breathed her scent in and out, and then he folded her into his arms and carried her away from that place. It would be a very long time before another human being saw Rebecca Fleming again. But that's another story.